You're listening to The Robin and Boom Show, the place where we engage the contemporary world with the great tradition. Wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, or elsewhere, you'll find us there. And now, here's today's co-host, Robin Phillips. Thank you, Mark, for that wonderful introduction. And also to our musicians, great bass playing and drumming. I love it. I love it. So I want to say a big thank you to our listeners for their patience with us as our production schedule has slowed down. Both Jason and I have been very busy. Uh, I've had a book contract that I've been negotiating, and Jason has been having more adventures in Siberia. And we'll give you details about both these things in future editions of the show. But as Jason is still in Siberia, I'm holding down the fort this week. But I assure you, Jason is well. He is not in a gulag, and he is managing to keep warm. And today, to help me keep things ticking, we have a very special guest, Dr. William Cabasinchi from Washington State University. Hello, Bill. How are you? I'm doing all right. Now, Bill and I have known each other for many years. We've gone hiking together. We've stayed in each other's homes. We've... Um, our, our, our sons are friends with each other. In fact, they're both at a church camp here in Post Falls today, and that's what brings Bill into this area. So I thought I'd grab him and, and do a podcast. So Bill is a professor of philosophy at Washington State University, and can you tell us a bit about how you first became interested in ethics in general and bioethics in particular? Sure. So when I went to college, I... Uh, had no idea what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I picked a biology major to start because uh, I liked uh, how learning about how the body works, and I liked uh, learning about the outdoors. So I figured somewhere between human physiology and environmental science, I might find something of interest. My sophomore year, and this is great, I went to Wheaton College in Illinois. Uh, my sophomore year, as part of my required biology major, I had to take a course that was basically on um, research methods and also on research ethics. And it was taught by um, a professor who, her PhD was in the history and philosophy of science. So when we did the research methods part, it was really philosophy of science. And when we did the research ethics part, it was obviously uh, ethics of research and that sort of thing. And I, uh, I, I don't know how to explain it other than to say that I immediately recognized the kinds of questions that she was raising in that course as being um, very interesting to me and questions I was especially eager to think about and possibly suited to uh, try to answer as well. <laughs> so that's how I got into it. Wow. Well, that's um, it's a, a great introduction into the world of philosophy. You know, philosophy is about understanding ourselves and the world better, being able to, to grapple with practical questions that we all deal with. And one of the things I like about some, a lot of the philosophical work you've done is that it is very practical. And that actually brings us to what I wanted to talk to, about today, which is virtue and virtue ethics. So Bill is the one who first introduced me to virtue ethics through the work of Alistair McIntyre, and he recommended I read the book After Virtue, which kind of um, gave, a, gave me a paradigm shift in my understanding of, of ethics. Can you um, just give us a, a brief sketch of what um, virtue ethics is, uh, maybe even start before that. What, what is virtue? Okay. 
So virtues, um, I would just describe as uh, character traits that are either constitutive of human flourishing. In other words, they're part of being the kind of person you would need to be in order to flourish or to live well as a human being, or they're traits that uh, strongly dispose a person towards human flourishing. There's a lot of debate within virtue ethics about exactly what the relationship is, but basically good character traits, traits that help people to live good lives, to live well. Um, you know, if you have, for instance, something that you care about, uh, and you have to consider the possibility that at some point that thing that you care about, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a commitment to a religious tradition, at some point it's going to be threatened in one way or another. And so it will take a virtue like courage to preserve your commitment to the thing that you care about. Um, so that's an example, uh, you know, a quick, uh, quick example of, of a virtue that uh, enables uh, us to preserve our, our commitments and to live good lives in light of that. Interesting, interesting. So a lot of the uh, philosophical work on ethics that I've read deals with actions and yeah. so forth, whereas when you bring virtue into it, it's more about persons. It's about becoming the sort of person that can flourish and exist yeah. in a well-ordered way. Would that be fair to say? That is. That's accurate. Yeah, yeah that was the other part of your question I answered earlier. So, I mean, yeah, you're right. Uh, it, it, first of all, we should say that virtue ethics is kind of the original ethics. Um, if you look at ancient Greek, uh, ancient Hebrew, ancient uh, Chinese philosophy, uh, you know, they didn't really um, have a systematic theoretical way of organizing their philosophies of life, but really what they are is virtue ethics. They're about, as you said, becoming a certain kind of person. Um, and that is a kind of person who can live well. And each of those different traditions has a vision of what a flourishing human life looks like. Um, at some point along the way, uh, there, there was a, uh, a shift in focus to actions, right? Um, that ethics is about what's the right thing to do. In fact, there's even a, a famous textbook in uh, you know, a 20th century ethics textbook called What's the Right Thing to Do? Yeah. And um, so from the perspective of virtue ethics, that's asking uh, questions out of order. We ought to ask first, what kind of person should I become? And that will help us later on to answer the question, what's the right thing to do? Um, so a, a, a philosophy, uh, an ethics that's based on Immanuel Kant's work or John Stuart Mill's work is very much going to be focused on, in fact, much in the second half of the 20th century, an awful lot of ethics courses were taught with a focus on you know, figuring out what's the right thing to do. And it was kind of a, you know, a quandary ethics or a dilemma-based ethics where you're presented with a, you know, the Nazis are at your door, you're hiding Jews in your attic, what's the right thing to do? Should you lie to the Nazis? So, you know, maybe a consequentialist or a utilitarian ethic would say, uh, no, you, you should lie to the Nazis in order to preserve the greater good of protecting the Jews and hiding in your attic. Um, on some versions of Kant's ethics, the claim is you should never lie. So you would have to tell the truth if the Nazis are asking you. But either way, the question is really about um, what you should do. And that's, and that's the focus of a lot of uh, action-oriented ethics. And virtue ethics definitely takes a step back and wants to ask questions about the kind of person you are. And it's not as if it ignores questions about what you should do, but it it wants to situate those questions in the larger context of what kind of person you should be. Excellent. So we don't put the cart before the horse. We, <clears throat> we ask what type of person do I want to become and what, what type of actions will lead towards 
towards that end. Yes. Um, so, uh, w- what has been Alistair McIntyre's contribution to this field? He was one of a few philosophers who kind of brought attention back to it. Again, I said a second ago, it was, it's kind of the original ethics. It was an ancient uh, way of doing ethics, um, but it kind of got lost from view. And so he, along with um, a few other philosophers, uh, Elizabeth Anscombe and Philippa Foote are two of the others that come to mind, um, they kind of brought attention back to it and said, um, you know, there, there's uh, something important here that has been missed. And, and, and since that time, uh, I think it's fair to say that virtue ethics has become quite popular again. There's a lot of, you know, that's not to say that, you know, all philosophers agree with everything that uh, virtue ethics has to say. Certainly not, not even close to that. You can't find anything that philosophers all agree. <laughs> but, um, but there's an awful lot of renewed interest, you know, not just in virtue ethics as a theoretical approach, but in looking at particular virtues and trying to unpack the moral psychology of, you know, what does it mean to be a humble person? What does it mean to be um, a patient person? I got to go to a seminar a few years ago at Calvin College that was entirely focused on intellectual humility. And we spent a lot of time sort of teasing out and unpacking what is what exactly is the virtue. Because um, Aristotle will say that um, whenever we're trying to characterize a virtue, a good character trait, we have to consider the possibility of uh, excess and deficiency of that. You know? mm-hmm. so, so to use my courage example again, an excess of courage is not a virtue. That's being rash. You know, the person who runs into the... You know, maybe the soldier, excuse me, the soldier who runs into the line of fire, they're not necessarily demonstrating courage. They might be rash. That might not be the right thing to do under those circumstances. But then, obviously, having a deficiency of courage would also be a problem. And um, <coughs> similarly with humility, if we go around debasing ourselves and um, unconfident, so forth. I don't know if that would be considered humility, but but you can. Um, it, it, it would be an excess. So, um, what are some specific issues that you've been working on where you use this virtue framework to help us grapple with problems in the modern world? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I was thinking because anticipating this conversation, I was thinking a little bit about how I would talk about that. So, in a second, I'll give the kind of answer that I think you're probably looking for. But being a philosopher, I like to, you know, sort of clarify and and in some cases contest the question. Um, And so I I think it's important to, from my perspective, it's important to avoid um, what what I'm going to refer to as an applied ethics model. Like you go to school, you get really good at a theoretical approach in ethics, and then you go out into the world and you just apply it. Um, now, for a long time, that is how people taught ethics. Um, again, I'm thinking second half of the 20th century. That you know, and when, 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 when all you have is a hammer, everything begins to look like a nail. Sure, yeah. Um, but also the idea being that the conversation is one way. The philosophers will come down from their ivory tower to the benighted folks of the world, and they'll tell them what to do because they'll be able to apply their theoretical wisdom to these concrete practical circumstances. And you're right, as you said earlier, I mean, the, the areas where I work, um, my research is in primarily in biomedical ethics. So um, it's a very practical field. You know, this is healthcare providers and scientists who are wondering, you know, what's the right thing to do? Um, you know, there's that question again. Um, so, uh, 
so I, I guess I'm eager to avoid a way of thinking about virtue ethics that says once you've got your understanding of what virtue ethics is, maybe you understand a few virtues, then it's a matter of just going out in the world and applying them and, uh, and you know, understanding how to apply, say, humility or courage or whatever the virtue we're talking about in a particular context. But in a sense, isn't that what you're doing? In some sense, it is. But I, it's important to me that the conversation is a two-way conversation. So, for instance, in biomedical ethics, it's important to me that um, it's not just uh, a, a philosopher bringing the theoretical resources to the practical context, but also reflecting in the practical context about um, uh, what it, what what it would look like to have success, say, as a healthcare provider. Um, so. The, the alternative model, I call it a practical ethics model, it's, it, it is indeed focused on practical questions, but it's one where we're thinking with the practitioners okay. rather than sort of applying our work to their domain. So, so you're respecting the categories of the various practitioners and yeah. working alongside them. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. And, so, so. and I, should, I should just add one more thing. It seems to me that there's something about virtue ethics that lends itself especially well to that. I mean, Alistair McIntyre frequently uses examples in his books and articles. Um, it, to some people, they feel kind of random. He'll be like pointing to, say, a fishing community in New England or um, an ancient monastic community. And uh, the idea there is he, he's thinking about how the virtues emerge from practical context. Like it's in the it's in the context of going about the practical day-to-day -day aspects of our lives that we start to reflect on what would it mean to be doing well in this context. So it's a two-way conversation in, in, in the sense that it, it kind of comes from the ground up to a certain extent. And I, I like that because it, it, it gives a place for tradition within virtue yes. reasoning. Yeah, and that's hugely important for McIntyre. Yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. So, so so, so what are some fields where you've been um, taking this approach? Yeah. So uh, one example, uh, there's an increasing number of uh, methods of doing genetic testing, prenatal genetic testing, in order to know certain things about certain characteristics of children. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, this raises practical what should you do kind of questions like should a couple, should a set of prospective parents do genetic testing, what kind of information should they seek to learn, and then what should they do with that information. Um, in some parts of the world, uh, for instance, if a couple receives a prenatal diagnosis that they're carrying a child with Down syndrome, um, uh, in some places it's as high as 95% of, parent, of parents will do selective abortion. So they'll terminate the pregnancy and try again because they don't want to have a child who has Down syndrome. Um, so there are all kinds of questions, important ethical questions about, you know, how should we use these uh, prenatal tests? Do they benefit anyone? Um, do they benefit anyone in an ethically unproblematic sort of way? Um, one of the ways, one of the sort of entry points for me for thinking about this is to think about what would good parenting look like. So again, this is me trying to think in a practical context about, um, you know, what is success in the practices of parenting going to look like? If you read in psychology, uh, there's a pretty strong consensus that um, parents who are hypercritical, who are um, 
very conditional in the way that they sort of measure out their love for their children, that this is ultimately not good for the well-being of those children. And I suspect, I've explored this idea also, it's not good for the relationship between the parents and the child. In other words, if a parent is hypercritical toward a child, they're unlikely to be able to enjoy a very healthy relationship uh, with the child. So if relationships are an important part of our flourishing, then we need to ask, what does it look like? What, what kind of person would I need to become in order to be the sort of person who could flourish in relationship with others? So this brings us around to the prospect of uh, the, the phrase that's often used to characterize this in the bioethics literature is the virtue or the virtues of unconditional parental love. That as a parent, <clears throat> I should love my children unconditionally. Now, to, to be clear, that's not to say that you approve of or you accept everything that a child does. Right? Again, if we think in terms of the you know, excess and deficiency of virtue, it would be important to sort of qualify and nuance this by saying that to love your child unconditionally is not to say whatever you're doing is okay. You know, if you want to take a car and drive down the interstate the wrong way or um, shoot a gun randomly into a crowd, I mean, it's not as if you accept and approve of everything a child does. But at root, there is a fundamental love uh, for an acceptance of the child for who they are, as opposed to say, you know, um, conditioning your love on whether the child, um, you know, gets good grades in school or performs well in an athletic or artistic context or something like that. Okay, so if that's a virtue that, uh, or potentially a set of virtues, I'm going to remain neutral on that for now. Um, if that's a, a virtue that emerges from just reflecting on what success in parenting looks like, then we could think about um, whether that virtue is relevant to the sorts of questions that I was uh, describing a moment ago about the use of prenatal genetic testing. Um, at one extreme, it seems pretty clear that this virtue would be highly relevant. So for instance, uh, anyone who's eager to engage in you know, creating a designer baby. You know, this, I mean, this is not exactly genetic testing, but it's genetic testing sort of moves in the direction of the possibility of genetic modification, things like CRISPR-Cas9 and other gene editing techniques that are just now emerging are you know, very likely to have clinical applications before too long. And, and so we could ask, well, so should a parent who ought to be, assuming that they're committed to flourishing in the context of a relationship with their child, should they be very picky and choosy before the child is born and then attempt to flip a switch and love the child unconditionally once they are born? Um, and, and this sort of brings out another, um, I think, important feature of virtue ethics as a distinctive approach in ethics, and that is, is that um, it's very uh, developmental in nature, right? The assumption of many virtue ethicists, and this goes back into ancient literature, is you can't just decide to become a good person. It's going to be a process. You're going to have to engage in a kind of moral formation over time. You know, so Aristotle will talk about the sorts of practices you would need to engage in in order to embody or acquire virtues. And um, to a certain extent, uh, you know, it's not as if you, you ever perfectly acquire the virtue of courage or humility, but you engage in a process of um, slowly over time becoming more and more the kind of person you're aiming at being. So there's a kind of aspirational element. You know, just like say a violin player would never say, I've done it. I've mastered the violin. It's, I'm, I'm, I have perfectly succeeded in playing the violin. They would always, I mean, and especially the, the further in they get in their uh, attempts at mastery and expertise, they would always be very eager to ask, you know, 
what's the target? What am I aiming at? Where are we going? So the same thing is true with virtues, right? So, um, so then the question becomes, is what sorts of engagements with contemporary biomedical technologies are consistent with a trajectory of moral formation that a person might have other reasons for pursuing? If I want to become the kind of person later on who is able to love my children unconditionally, I have to ask, what should I be doing even at the earliest stages of my relationship with any children that I might have? Um, what am I doing now that will have implications or bearing for who I am and how I conduct myself with my children later on? Wow, that, that is such a, a, a fresh approach compared to a lot of the ethical reasoning and implied ethical reasoning that I see in the media and the news in the public discussion about bioethics. Um, is, is, is this becoming more mainstream within the public discourse or, or is this approach to virtue um, still very uh, marginalized? I don't know. It's hard to say. You know, in some corners it's uh, quite prominent, quite popular, uh, but in other places... I'm not so sure that it is. Uh, I, I mean, part of the, um, if you want a quick answer, if you want a short loop kind of answer. So for instance, uh, physicians have sometimes been characterized to me as very short loop thinkers in certain contexts. They, they need to, because they're often holding a pe people's lives in their hands, they need to be able to quickly assess a situation, get to a concrete answer and start acting on it in short order. <clears throat> so, um, that predisposes them when they come to the ethical questions that they sometimes face in clinical settings to want a short loop, quick answer. We've been talking for a little bit now. <clears throat> and as you can see from this conversation, there's not a quick, and you know, if, if, if you pop the question to me, should you engage in uh, pre-implantation genetic testing or prenatal genetic testing? Um, I'm, I'm inclined to want to give a longer roundabout sort of answer um, in order to, and I think that that doesn't work for some people. I think that they just want to know what should I do and they want it quickly. And, and um, so virtue ethics, because it tends to give more roundabout, uh, holistically oriented, you know, we're not just going to think about that question, but let's take a few steps back and think about what would it mean to be a good parent or something like that. Yeah. I think it makes it a little harder for some people to uh, fully appreciate it. But I will say that in certain kinds of contexts, in certain sorts of communities, there is very much an interest in not just what should I do, but what kind of person should I become. Yeah. And as a father, I find that this approach is very valuable. Um, with teenagers, they're always trying to get you to ask, okay, well, are you, are you saying that it's wrong for me to watch this movie? Or is this computer game bad? Or is, is this a sin? And I'm always trying to take a step back and, okay, well, no, let's, let's look at what sort of person you're going to become and what type of, what sort of person do you want to become and what sort of habits will get you there. Yes. And in a sense, that's a much higher standard than a more legalistic approach because it has that developmental, aspirational aspect to it where you can always grow towards greater and greater flourishing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. It, it, in some sense, it makes it easier and in other senses, it makes it harder. It makes it easier because, um, maybe less, it feels like less rides on any one decision, you know, um, much of our lives are an accumulation over time of many decisions, many habits that we form. And I mean, habits start in some cases with very small steps. Um, 
So any one decision is not the one that's going to break you or make you. But on the other hand, it's so in that sense, it's easier than someone who, particularly someone with a really legalistic mindset who uh, is very focused on, as you said, you know, like what is the black and white, right and wrong answer for any particular question? This movie, this song, you know, um, when I was, you know, a kid, you know, in the youth group, there were lots of discussions about how far can you go in dating, and like, what are the specific acts that it would be wrong to perform? And and virtue ethics um, is very much a different way of thinking about all that. It's asking more about, well, what kind of person do you want to become over the long haul? And if you start to think about the long haul, then it becomes harder because then um, I think it feels like the stakes are a little higher for thinking about. I'm not just thinking about today or this week or this month, but I'm thinking about um, the kind of person I'll be over the long haul of my life. And I mean, there's a lot at stake. Aristotle doesn't think you can change your character very much after age 30. (laughs) (laughs) So um, it matters what you do early in life. And it matters the kind of person you set yourself on a trajectory to become. I, I think he would certainly say that you'll continue to refine your embodiment of these virtues. But I think he thinks that there's an awful lot that's set in terms of the direction and the uh, emphasis by about mid- middle age, if we call 30 middle age. <laughs> well, he obviously didn't know about neuroplasticity. Perhaps, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of wisdom there. Um, in one of our earlier podcasts, um, forget which number, but it was with Keith Pimentel. He, he spoke about how he parents um, with... Um, with the aim of what his children will be like when they're 80 and 90 years old, yeah. not just during the period when they're at home. Yes. Um, and I think the, the focus on virtue g- gives us an incentive for that longer range approach. Well, we're going to have to be going pretty soon, but can you just give us one more example of, of um, areas that you've been working on? Sure. Yeah. So, um, since we did one at the beginning of the life, I'll uh, go to the end of life. And uh, um, I actually wrote my dissertation on uh, the topic of whether there are certain kinds of character traits, certain virtues that would enable a person to die well. If we think about human flourishing, we have to recognize that uh, the human lifespan is indeed a span, right? So um, we have to anticipate that at some point in our lives, we will face our mortality. We're going to die, right? And it's not the job or the role of contemporary medicine to keep you alive forever. I don't think we should want it to. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and so uh, we have to ask, well, what does, and this is a very funny way to think about it, but what does flourishing look like at the end of life? What does flourishing look like in the context of, say, dealing with terminal cancer or some other terminal illness? And so I argued that uh, there are uh, certain kinds of virtues that that uh, enable us to approach that period of our life well. Um, I was intrigued. Uh, I think it's William Ruddick was the philosopher who first introduced the suggestion that there might be different virtues that are especially important at different times in our lives. And um, so I explored a little bit the idea that um, what we might think of as decentering virtues, virtues like gratitude and um, patience, which are virtues that sort of orient us in a certain way towards others, right? If I'm a grateful person, I'm not just thinking about uh, how is the next thing coming along good for me, but I'm thinking about how did this good thing in my life come to be? And it's very often the case that there are other people who play important 
contributory roles in the good things in my life. And so practicing gratitude and embodying gratitude as a virtue is really important throughout life, but maybe becomes especially important at the end of life at a time when if you're intensely focused on yourself and your well-being um, and you're watching your well-being steadily decline as you approach death, that will be sort of psychologically difficult, right? Um, by contrast, if you can uh, become more attuned to and aware of the contributions of others in your life, uh, that may have uh, the effect, uh, I argued it does have the effect of enabling us to um, enter a time of life that can be very difficult to live through, particularly in isolation, um, not being isolated, but being not just maybe physically in community with others, but also sort of uh, psychologically uh, embedded with or invested in others um, in that period of life. Basically, the more you're thinking about yourself as you're dying and as your life is steadily uh, ebbing away and declining, the, uh, the more likely you are to find that difficult. But the more you're able to um, enjoy a sense of relationship and connection and community with others, the easier it is to not be so intensely focused on the way that your life is in decline. Well, yeah, that's a very important perspective to have when it comes to the aging, both both for ourselves and for our loved ones. Well, thank you so much, Bill, for coming on the show. You and I have known each other for a long time, and it's always a joy whenever I talk to you, and this conversation has been no exception. I hope we can have you on again when Jason is back in action as we continue to explore the role that virtue plays in human flourishing. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. The Robin and Boom Show is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you. To become a patron of the show, go to robinmarkphillips.com and select The Robin Boom Show from the drop-down menu. If you have questions you'd like to have addressed on a future episode, send us a message through our Facebook page. Once again, thanks for listening.